Thank you to Poise for sponsoring today's episode. Learn more at poise.com. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with her good times never end. Allison Rosen, doing the way that's dance again. Allison Rosen, Allison's your new best friend. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another exciting episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here in my studio with Jesse Thorne, who I cannot believe it's been this long, but I think it was like 2012 that you were originally on the show. It was in the first year. So it was either 2012 or 2013. Um, but I feel like I've seen you a bunch because I've done Jordan Jesse Go. And then Jordan comes over here a lot, but that's not the same. And here you are, and I'm very excited. Hello and welcome. Oh, what a joy to be here. Always a pleasure. Jesse Thorne. He is host of Bullseye. He is host slash co-host of Jordan Jesse Go with the aforementioned Jordan Morris. He uh, is... Now, you were the owner of the Max Fund Network, but things now, have changed. Well, I was the owner of the Max Fund Network. I still am in that I am now a worker owner of I see. the Max Fund Network, but only in the same capacity that all my fellow co-op members are. And you have tattoos on your fingers that I don't recall you having before. Did this coincide with the labor movement? <laughs> <laughs> these are relative. These you think they, like a stevedore gave me these? Is that what you're suggesting? I mean, I just don't. Somebody I just, down on the docks. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> at the union hall. Uh, they say play ball. I like that. Tattoos. What's the significance of that? There's this. Um, uh, well, I mean, I like baseball, so that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But the metaphorical significance is. Um, there's this, there's this piece that I like, this art piece that I like, that is a picture of a ball player. And it says, and I, enough people probably ask me this, that I should be able to say it from memory, but, uh, it, it, I believe it says, uh, life is a misery and no one knows when death may come Mm. play ball. I like that. It's like, it's later than you think. Yeah, exactly. So for me it's it's just a reminder to um you know just do your thing you know just go do something it's not you don't need to it's been such a hard i don't know if you i don't know if this is news to you guys but it's been a hard few years it's been rough yeah so it's okay to try and find some joy in life <laughs> yes i like that um i often think if i were to put a tattoo on my body and i don't have any tattoos however um, my dad died a little over a month ago. And so now I'm thinking of like, maybe he used to draw a little, <clears throat> when I, uh, inscribe my book or sign my name or anything, I put a little duck next to it. And I only recently came clean about the fact that my dad also would draw a little duck. Like I got it from him, but I feel like I, it makes more sense. Like I, ducks are more my thing than his. So <laughs> And now he's not here to defend it. So sorry. But anyway. What's his his ghost going to come take this duck thing back? (laughs) We can both do the duck. You know, I just feel like it. Even though he started it, he was copying me. My dad had a duck collection. Really? Yeah. We got duck dads. Oh, my God. Dead duck dads. Dead duck duck dads. dads club. Yes. We're like in a larger club. And I do have a list on my phone of people who've also lost their dads just in case I decide to really, you know, take my my 
podcast in a very specific direction. Mm-hmm. But we are like a, a upper duck echelon of the Dead Dad Club. But anyway, all, all of that to say, I was thinking of maybe getting the duck as he would draw it on me, on my body somewhere. But truly, if I were to get a tattoo, the my version of Playball, like something that reminded me of what, uh, just something that I, like a little post-it note of a tattoo, it would be like something that reminds me of Trey Parker and Matt Stone of South Park. Because when I think like, I get too in my head about what's the reaction going to be to this or that. And then I think like, think about them doing Book of Mormon, which was definitely sure to outrage a lot of people, but I think is so good. But here's the thing, like I'm not really a huge South Park fan and it would make no sense if I put like Cartman on my body. You know what I'm a, <laughs> you know what I'm a big fan of? Hmm. First of all, I'm a big fan of Bobby Lopez who made Book of Mormon with them. Yes, and the fr- most, of Frozen also. Yeah, Bobby and his wife Kristen are the most delightful human beings in God's creation. But um, I'm also a big fan of, there was this behind the scenes documentary about the making of South Park. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also like South Park is obviously is brilliant. Like I'm not here to put down South Park, but as a 40 something year old man, I just no longer have the, the like tolerance for the broad based contempt Mm -hmm. in which it holds everything (laughs) that I had that when I was 14 and it came on television. Um, But in that documentary, like it is just, it is one of those behind the scenes looks at show business where you can't believe it's real the whole time because they only exist in their own world. Mm-hmm. And it that's why they're so brilliant at what they do. It's why they've been able to do it for literal decades in a row. But the the thing that I think about all the time is they pull up and park their car at the just studio office. Like people who make TV shows, they just work in like a dumb bungalow mm-hmm. on a studio lot. It's not glamorous. They like pull up and then someone gets their car and details it while they're in there. <laughs> every day. <laughs> their car gets detailed every day while they're in the office. And I just think like they're on the one hand, they're like these compulsive workaholics making this like irreverent whatever. And then the other thing that's happening is there's little, literally a person whose job it is to detail their car while they're not looking. Right. <laughs> and like, I'm not even judgmental of that. Like they have infinite money. They might as well have somebody, to, you yeah. know, but like, I just think of like, what is this weird world where these right. two dirt bags yeah. <laughs> who's like entire raison d'etre, like their deal is check it out. Check us out. We're a couple of dirt bags, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? With the most impeccably cleaned and waxed car. <laughs> Just, well, I guess might as well. Yeah. And then Bill Hader's around, you know? Yes. Not the point, okay. but wouldn't an everyday detail be overkill? Yeah. That's why it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If it was just once a week, it wouldn't be anything. Right. No, that would just be like, okay, you know, it's an extravagance, but how nice for them. That means that there's an entire guy whose only job is detailing their cars. You're right. It's his full-time job. He's their car detailer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is making me feel better about not getting a tattoo of them. And like, you know? I don't even, it's not even like they're like obsessive compulsive or like they can't d- deal emotionally with having dirt in their cars Seems or like anything like that. They can. I think it's just because it was available. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. That way I can focus exclusively on 
thinking of expletives for Cartman to say. <laughs> See, my, I have always joked that if I had like endless money, I would put a salad bar in my house and I would have a driver. Yeah. And of late, I've become real hung up on like, when do I get to be someone who f- this is talk about like not being this is not the, uh, you know, concern of the of the common man. Um, but like, when do I get to be a person who flies first class? Because I've done it a couple times in my life, but I do not like regularly fly first class. I just want to fly. put me in business. I want to fly business. There is is there a business these days? I think the thing is, is that. There's only two amounts of ticket that you can buy now. Mm-hmm. One is abject misery. That's where one, I fly. Yes. And one is someone else is paying for it so it can right. they can charge any price. Yes. They realize that in between those two things is there's no profit center. My friend recently flew international with her two kids um, and posted a photo on the way back of her kids looking adorable and cherubic. In first class. And I was just like, oh my God, everyone, everyone is doing it. And then I thought, and I mean, it was a topic of conversation between my husband and me. And I was like, how is this happening? And then I was like, I bet her husband's work is paying for it because she was going to visit him. Oh, the, and the only other possibility is there are those people who are point kings. Yes. Yeah. You know, our our friend Jimmy Pardo is a stand-up comic and he's on the road 30 weeks a year or whatever. So and he's flying, you know, two legs to get to mm-hmm. Dubuque, and he can just tell them always to book him on the same airline. He gets so many points that at a certain point, our our uh, my co-host John Hodgman on Judge John Hodgman and I are about to go on tour to the UK, and I've been like trying to figure out how to get my migraine suffering six foot four ass mm-hmm. to England without dying on the way. Yeah. And you know, there was a time when Hodgman. When he was working in the Mac versus PC ads, he lived in New York and they shot them in LA. And just part of the union deal is that you get yes. good plane tickets and they would fly him out anytime they were shooting them. So he'd just be out once a month or so and they'd be flying him back and forth. And he built up so many points that he never had to travel economy again until he he basically wrote an entire book about realizing that he was reaching middle-aged irrelevance by the fact that he no longer had all those points. And Mm. all of a sudden, if you wanted to fly in a regular, in a fancy airplane, he had to pay for it. (laughs) And like, that is the other category is Mm -hmm. a dude that a salesman that flies around. Yeah. I've gotten it a few times that way through my Yeah. I remember Aisha Tyler, so this is also a long time ago saying that like she I think she was giving me life advice and I take any advice yes from Tyler. she's the best but she was like fly one airplane choose one airplane well, I mean sorry not airplane. one airplane mine's the Aerobus 321 <laughs> no fly um one airline yeah and rack right. up the points because when she would fly I think hers was Delta maybe but there like you can hit an echelon where I think they like ferry, like they they escort you to the plane and off, and there's like a whole secret oh. world. Yeah. So anyway, though, okay. So salad bar, chauffeur, private jet, obviously Aisha for Tyler. me. Yeah. What for would me, you- it would be to have Aisha Tyler around to sort of just give me guidance. Yes. On how to have twelve <laughs> show business jobs at once. She went to my high school. She did. Yeah. She's your performing arts high school. Number one graduate of San Francisco School of the Arts. I didn't With know no that. no offense, Margaret Cho, you're also wonderful. 
Mm-hmm. Who else went to your high school? Sam Rockwell. Okay. They were all in like the original cohort. Uh, since then, there's a really brilliant woman who was a, a classmate of my wife's. Uh, she's one year younger than my wife and I, named Aya Cash, who is oh yeah a wonderful actor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she's on Welcome to Flatch right now and was on You're the Worst. Um, there's a woman who won a Tony for uh, uh, Hedvig and the Angry Inch, mm. played the uh, sidekick on Hed- Hedvig and the Angry Inch. Um, she went to she went to high school with us, and then there's just they're like I think the cool thing about the arts high school that my wife and I went to, like everybody is like, uh, everybody runs an after school program. Like everyone that we went to school with does like community minded arts things that are awesome. That is sweet. Yeah. Uh, so I was actually just listening back to the episode that you were on way back when, Oh, oh wait, no. no, I'm cutting myself off. Sorry. If you yeah. had endless amounts of money, what are your things that you, what are your extravagances? Wow. That's a great question. I mean, I feel like, so <laughs> one of the things about my lifestyle is, I think growing up with very little money, but like really intense, my mom in particular has very intense taste. And so to me, you can just do the things. There's ways to just do the things without having the money. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it works exactly. I do seem to be able to do it. But like when I was a kid, we were, you know, we weren't go hungry poor, mm-hmm. but like definitely borrow money for the rent poor sometimes. And I went to multiple foreign countries as a small child. You know what I mean? Like, right. And I've all, you know, you mentioned I have a, a menswear website. You know, I we always bought all my clothes at the thrift store, but like it's called put this on. I think I mentioned it off air. Oh, so okay. put this so, on. Yeah. Yeah. So like, but. It was always, you know, the kind of clothes that an infinitely rich person would be able Mm -hmm. to buy. We just happened to buy them at the thrift store. So to me, like, very few of those things aren't accessible. I think the the biggest ones for me are probably like, you know, I get really bad migraine headaches and like things that would accommodate that. So it is things like if I could fly first class, Mm -hmm. like if I could, if I could never fly overnight yeah (laughs) you know if i could those sorts of things are the are the ones Mm -hmm. because what i mean i already live in los angeles like i would want to live in the city but i do um you know like i have a house full of antiques but that's because i go to the flea market every weekend you know what i mean so um most of those kind of things that i would want i I have yeah i'm i'm jotting down flea market because You responded to one of my tweets or someone tagged you in it. We got to talk about that. Great. It's a lot of stuff we need to talk about. Um, But anyway, I I was listening back to our original episode and I would encourage listeners of this, go back and just search Allison Rose and Jesse Thorne. It was a, I hadn't like listened to it since we recorded it, but it was really good, far ranging episode. We talked about, we talked about the Mayan calendar. Snooki. We talked about the sundial. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Honey boo boo. <laughs> Toddlers and tiaras. Yeah. I mean, but then also just uh, like a defense of design. We got kind of deep on talking about, I was saying that I have this very um, conflicted feeling about fashion because I, and this is how I felt back then. I've, 
I'm not really that way anymore. But I, at, the, at the time, I felt there was some part of me that was like, it shouldn't matter because it's so surface level. Like we shouldn't be looking at how someone presents themselves. We should just be looking at the essence of who they are. Um, but, you know, then we we talked about sort of your love of design and yeah, it went deep and it was good. And uh, frankly, there's no way this one can hold a candle to it. It's okay. I mean, people should just stop now. Go listen to go that back. one. And then just spend the rest of the time watching Honey Boo Boo. Yes. Just remembering so, how great it was before before we know what we knew, know, knew right. what we know now about it, what America is. You had, yeah, I know we were, if only we knew. Your <laughs> first baby was 13 months old when you came on the show. Holy That's how long God. it was. How long ago it was. Now I have three of those. I know. And the, so, and the funny thing is when I was interviewing you, I was... I was saying like, yeah, I hope to have a kid, you know, and I referred to Daniel as my boyfriend, which he was at the time. Like it was just a long time ago, but you were saying, and I relate the me now related so intensely to it. I didn't know then that you and your wife were clinging to this idea that somehow you could get back to like the life you had before and that there just was no way. And I was like, oh man, is that true? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I just had that conversation with a friend who has his first son, um, who's now, I guess he's about eight months, 10 mm-hmm. months. And there is a, for me as an only child, Hajran has this line in his in, in his old act that was, he's a member of the uh, super smart, only children afraid of conflict narcissist club. <laughs> And like, I 100% identify with that, right? But like, as an only child to me, like, and as the child of, uh, you know, divorced single parents and who are constantly in conflict Mm -hmm. and, you know, as a person who raised himself essentially in many ways, um, like to me, all I want, I'm not a loner, but like, I just want, I just feel like I need autonomy, total Mm -hmm. autonomy and and that any conflict might destroy everything. And so like what I should do is just uh, be reading quietly in my room. And um, the antithesis of having children. Yeah. And, you know, my wife comes from a Catholic family. Um, She has two siblings, but 20,000 cousins that all lived in the same place. And, um, and to her, like having everyone around and, and, losing your sense of self are like <laughs> totally normal wholesome activities mm-hmm. and to me i'm yeah i still all these years later i'm still just like i just i just want to sit in the corner and re- read a book sometimes mm-hmm. i do love my family <laughs> <laughs> yeah so was going from one to two to three a challenge for you it's a nightmare. I mean, it gets <laughs> it gets harder and harder and harder, and then it and then it leveled up twenty times, you mm-hmm. know, unexpectedly. Uh, like yeah. with one, you can trade off, and I think it makes a huge difference. Like right now, my my wife's parents just retired. And I mean, just like in the last eight weeks, and so they're each going to be kind of spending a a week a month ish with us. Oh. Um, nice. And it's pretty monumentally different when you have some family support, mm-hmm. um, which we did never have. But, uh, but like with one, you can trade off, right? So somebody can go do something. Um, once it gets to two, it gets pretty dicey. 
Um, and then beyond that, you just kind of get subsumed and yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Daniel and I oftentimes still try to, we have two who are two years apart. We still try to trade off, but there always is that sort of defeating feeling in the middle of like a Saturday or Sunday where it's like, oh no, it's going to be a divide and conquer day. Like we're not, we're not going to be able to trade off today. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, for us, like all, all three of our kids, my kids are 12, recently 12, nine and six. And all three of them are neurodivergent. We didn't have any idea. Like we had all three before we knew the first one was autistic. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, uh, and like it, the, what they need was so far different from what we would have imagined, mm-hmm. um, ever would have imagined, uh, that it's like would never have, we never could have anticipated any of it. So even just the three was plenty before. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh, wow, we're way, way, way past our depth. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. It's, uh, and then at that point, I guess you just kind of surrender to it and be like, this is, this is what I do now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like you just try and find ways to buffer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just try and find buffers. So tell me about the, about the changes in MaxFun because I yeah. am curious about that. Well, MaxFun was – I mean like, like you, I've been podcasting since the dawn of time. We invented podcasting. Yeah, Many exactly. people say to us all the time. Um, I mean, I, I started podcasting in 2004. Um, and over many years sort of started by building a kind of a business around my shows and then in, in integrated friends shows into that and, and built up a podcast network that was a, 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 one of the first podcast mm-hmm. networks and, but you know, still very s- relatively small independent operation. And it got to the point where it was like, we were about 20 ish employees to 22 dozen. And I still like, I never had business training or capital <laughs> or, investors Mm -hmm. or even knew how you got investors. I still kind of don't. Um, I just know the term angel round, but I don't know what it means. Exactly. That's 100% where (laughs) I'm at. I'm like, I think it involves golf clubs Mm -hmm. or your friend's dad. Something with venture. There's venture. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't know. My it's a different world. I think my friend's dad was a specialized house painter. (laughs) Um, so like, uh, it, it became, quite an operation and an operation of really incredible people, right? Because we had been through the, the podcast boom cycles where, you know, everybody was just whatever it would be like, well, cat fancier magazine just got $20 billion (laughs) from Mark Cuban to make narrative podcasts about cats. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we'd been through all of that. And, and the people who stuck with us were people who really like wanted to be part of an independent operation that was doing something that was sort of fun and cool, but also sort of, this makes it sound terrible, but values driven. It's not like we're running the Hallmark channel or something. Right. But like, and um, 
As opposed to just being money driven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At no point, like it was always about people deserve to work, make stuff and get, make money from their work. Mm-hmm. Never felt bad about that. But also how can we do that in a way that we feel good about it? Right. And, um, it, when I had long thought I would like to stop being a business person and just be a podcast host. Did it, cause did it always feel like an ill fit or was it pulling you away from what you wanted to do? Well, like, in so, like I've always been the dad of everything mm-hmm. that I've ever, every creative endeavor that I've ever been in. I've always been the, you know, second most talented and first <laughs> most dad. Right? Like, <laughs> Like I've been always was when Jordan and I did improv in college, I was the guy who like said, okay, this is, we make the flyers mm-hmm. and we get this out. We get people to come to the show and blah, 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 blah. And you know, it's not like I was untalented, but Jordan was better than me. And, uh, so I've always been that guy, but it's not, you know, it, it wasn't what I wanted mm-hmm. in my life. So I was always like a problem solver, but it's sort of a backwards problem solver. I also was never the guy that was like, I think I could think of how to make this scale, Mm. you know, or like, I think I could beat the system. Mm -hmm. It was like, I think I could come up with a way to make enough money that I get to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And so it was always a lot. And I think emotionally was the hardest for Mm me. What it was about a never feeling secure. Like, you know, when it's not investors money, um, you're like, Oh wow. If something went wrong, that's just my house, I guess. Like, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Like, I guess that would be, I would be firing people that I love and it, my, I would lose my house. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't the be like, so I'm high. a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> right. I'd start a new thing. I'd go yeah. back to the angel mm-hmm. round. Yeah, you're not Sophia Amoroso. Exactly. You know that is. And, <clears throat> um, uh, and so in the pandemic, I really got serious about it. I had thought about selling to when everybody was buying podcast companies and I couldn't come up with a version of it in my head that didn't feel awful. Mm -hmm. Cause I knew people would get fired. Even if I sold it to the most benevolent thing ever, there would be redundancy and people would get fired Mm -hmm. that I love. And so I would felt it kind of got to a crisis in the, in the uh, pandemic just for me personally. And so I called our lawyer and I was like, do you know how people sell companies? Because we had had like inquiries and I had always like taken a meeting and then been like, well, I don't know. I mean, why would I? Mm-hmm. Were they good offers? We never got like numbers on a, but the amounts of money would have been good amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's, like I said, it never went past like three meetings. Mm-hmm. So it never went, they never like pushed a thing, but they suggested amounts of money that would have been great. Maybe I should have took them. Um, but uh, my father-in-law happened to work for decades at an employee-owned hardware store in Marin County here in California. And he's like a total hero of mine, an amazing human being, and uh, a very brilliant and de- decent businessman. Um, and he also like, you know, he would have just had a regular career in retail where he, you know, maybe ended up his career making $50,000 a year as the assistant manager of something. Uh, but because he, because he didn't, you know, he didn't go to college or anything. And, uh, he, he worked at, he happened to end up at this employee owned hardware store. And because of that, like he had a real professional career mm-hmm. and, um, 
And, you know, we, I, one time when I was like 19, my wife and I, then my girlfriend, went with her family to Hawaii on a trip that the store paid for because the store would just take everyone to Hawaii every other year. Wow. Just that was like part of, because successful store, employee owned, that's how they shared the, and so I called him and I said, Steve, would it be crazy if I made Max Fun employee owned? And he said, you know, the, the form of employee ownership that they have is called an ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Program. And he said, I have that, and it probably isn't right for you, but I don't think that you're wrong to think that that could happen. So I, I found a nonprofit in Oakland called Project Equity that specializes in helping small businesses transition to worker ownership. And it took a long time and a lot of hard work, both on my part and on the part of the employees who have to essentially organize a structure for the company. Mm -hmm. you know, they have to write a constitution functionally um, and agree to do the work of being in charge. Um, but yeah, we, we became a worker owned cooperative is our, is our form a co-op mm -hmm. um, as of uh, gosh, I guess <laughs> six weeks ago, something like that, eight weeks ago. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I, I have transitioned. I used to be the owner now I'm an owner or a member of the co-op, just mm -hmm. like just like everybody else is. So are you just are you at this? Do you have the same yeah, control as same everyone else? As everybody else, yeah. the The way a co-op works is um, basically if you work there, based on certain criteria, you can join the co-op. Mm -hmm. When you join the co-op, you elect the board, uh, and the board decides who's running the company, just like any board does. And sometimes decides on certain big issues at, at Max Fun. It's like the board takes an overall vote if if they want to move the office, for example. Like mm -hmm. there's just a few things like right. that. But mostly the board just acts as a board, just oversees the management, just like they would anywhere else. And you know, when there's money left over at the end of the year, they decide how much of it gets saved for the future, how much of it gets distributed to everybody, how it gets distributed. Um, and so in, instead of it being like everybody gets five percent of the company. It's the co-op owns a hundred percent of the company and mm -hmm. you're either a member of the co-op or not. And everyone who works there is a member so or you like can, you have to be there for a certain amount of time. So the, there's little qualifications. I want in. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I know. Right. <laughs> uh, there's like little qualifications. So um, you have to work there a certain amount of time and you have to be full time mm -hmm. um, and it's optional. So you don't have to, because part of what you want is you want people who are choosing that, right? You don't want people to, Take it lightly, so to right. speak. So the you have to put some money in. The money is uh, I'm trying to think of what it is for us. It's like fifteen hundred dollars or something like that, and you can take it out of your paycheck over a long period mm -hmm. of time. And that money goes into a trust, and you get it back after you leave. It's not gone forever, but it's it's just an amount of money that's sort of like this counts, right? Um, but yeah, it's it's like if you work there. I think for us, six months you have to work there full time then you can join. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you join, you know, at the end of the year, you get to vote on who's on the board and who hires and fires the CEO. You know what I mean? So who is like the in charge of it now? Well, Bikram Chatterjee uh, has been our managing director for years now. So like one of the reasons that we could do this is, uh, you know, Bikram is a dude who he used to work as a like high powered business consultant for one of these high powered business consultancies. And 
when I needed to stop being the managing the everyday, I was like, I don't even know any business people. Mm-hmm. Like I literally don't like, I'm not even like, do you just go down to the Kiwanis club? Because like, <laughs> where do you meet business people? <laughs> right. Where are they? Like, I was like, okay, I'm just, I could call Andy Kindler, comedian Andy Kindler, I could call. Yeah. Uh, he could explain to me how his residuals on the Wizards of Waverly Place work. <laughs> um, but like, uh, yeah, I, I truly didn't even know business people. And Bikram happened to be a friend of a friend and and he had been, he wasn't even like, he didn't even have a business degree. It just turns out if you go to Yale, you can become a business consultant. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what yes, your degree is. Yes, it comes with the diploma. Yeah, you did. They just give you a $250,000 a year job when you're 23. <laughs> but um, Bigram had been, you know, helping whatever used car distributors optimize their businesses for 15 years. And he wanted to work on something that he actually gave a care about. And um, so he, him being in place and working with him to develop our employees' skills um, was sort of what allowed it to happen. Because it's like, it's it, the, it doesn't work unless the people that are there are people you trust that are good enough to do it. Right. You know what I mean? And one of the biggest things that, take, that we had to do to take the time was, um, you know, one of the things Project Equity works on is that it means that anybody who's a member of the co-op has to have enough understanding of the business and how it works to do a good job voting on who should be on the board and, mm-hmm. and the board to vote on who should be the boss. You know what I mean? So for me, Bikram was already doing most of the day-to-day running of things. He was the one who would like have a staff meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was more about leaving behind the feeling that if I fucked something up, somebody would lose their livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of respect and that, and that my family's entire, cause like in my family and my wife's family, there's no other resources, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm the one that's helps my mom and my siblings, my half siblings and my stepmother. <laughs> um, and like, there's no other, there's no other backup. Right. right? So like if that, if something went wrong, what if it, the whole house of cards fell down, mm-hmm. right? Just like to put up a little firewall. Yeah. So, so how do you feel now? Do you, do you feel a sense of relief? Yeah. I mean, it's weird. It's like also coincided like towards, <laughs> maybe we spent 18 months working on this. Um, might have even been more than that. And like in the final six months was like the first half of this year, which as you as a podcaster know, the weirdest, most bizarre, brutal year in the history of podcasting. It's been pretty, I feel when I hear how bad it is for some people, I feel lucky, but yeah, it's definitely like, you know, things are down for yeah. me by 50% I, or something. I mean, it's like, yeah, like it, pretty it's, intense. I think for, for, at least. for you and I, like not solely being about advertising makes a big difference. Yes. Um, but like the, the podcast ad market went totally haywire, mm-hmm. um, because of people's weird for what macroeconomic reasons. I don't know. Well, I, my sense is that there's just an economic downturn and like one of the first places that you feel that like advertisers pull back. Right. A they, lot. they freak out. It's like yeah. the first, it's like the first thing you can just cross off and right. be like, okay. Uh, yeah. If you're worried. Right. We're not doing that many podcast ads this year. Yeah. yeah. So 
that happened while it was happening. So like, I'm still like, there's a still part of me that's like got my, that's like holding onto the table, white knuckling. Mm-hmm. Like, this is going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And it everything, is though, right? Everything, it's I mean, gonna turn around, right? <laughs> I mean, the honest truth is that the, the good news is that maximum fun, at least because of the way we're built and because of the kind of depth and connection with our audience, like we were in really good shape, mm-hmm. like a, in a way that, a lot of companies out there that were just trying to grab as much market share by spending as much money as they could all at once were not. Mm. And those companies all are going out of business, canceling shows. There's and, a move away from narrative podcasting is my understanding because yeah, well, it's just it's, too expensive. It's, it's expensive. Yeah. And I mean like even NPR, which distributes my show, like they laid off 15% of their staff, Jeez. Um, which is a lot. And NPR is relatively stable funding, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, uh, it's 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 not totally ad-driven, you know what I mean? So, yeah, things, things still going crazy. So I'm like, there's a little bit of me that's like, everything's fine, everything's fine, nothing's gonna, because I don't want it to be like, Jesse sold the company to the employees and uh, uh, then it went out of business because <laughs> right. of something that he did. Um, but, oh, you still feel responsible. But I do feel like I'm getting to the place where I feel better. And I'm getting to also like one of the nice things about it is like when I do Jordan Jesse Go with Jordan, I do Judge John Hodgman with John, like that's such a great joy and pleasure for me that like having a little room in my life to be like, oh, but what if we did this? Mm-hmm is so is so great you know like with hotron we're going on three tours this fall right we're doing east coast midwest and we're going to copenhagen denmark and it's like that's something where i could where hodgman and i were like let's go on tour but like for real Mm -hmm. like let's go do a tour you know or like on bullseye my npr show forever i have wanted to do (laughs) rap month and just only do rappers because I'm, uh, I've always rolled my eyes at how public radio engages public media in general engages with hip hop. And I was just like, I just want to do like all rappers, like not even like hip hop culture month or something, just straight, just rappers. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Let's just do that. I have room in my heart for mm-hmm. that. Master P was in the office the other day. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah, we did it. <laughs> But is it that you there's less on your plate so you are getting these ideas, these creative ideas that maybe you weren't getting before? Or is it that you feel like you can take more risks? It is that there is more room in my emotional life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that I can allow myself to I mean, I think you're right about risk as well. Like I'm one of the one of the differences between me and real entrepreneurs and one of the byproducts of my uh, weird semi-poverty childhood is how deeply risk averse I am. Yeah. And so I think part of it is like, part of it is it, it allows me some room to just think of myself as talent, think of myself as creative and let myself do something that I think is, and I mean, it, obviously it's ridiculous because I make dick, George, dick jokes with Jordan 
and like pretend to be a bailiff with John. You know, like it's not mm-hmm. like I'm, uh, it's it's not like I'm building solar arrays, but um, but like yeah, just to just to like feel like I'm a dude that could just do creative stuff, right? And that's okay and a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would imagine sort of having uh, backed your way into being a business person for so long, like that's a, that is a huge responsibility. And it's a lot of like, just you, you're probably familiar with the term mental load. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge mental load, like to constantly be thinking of all the business stuff. Yeah. And you know, the, the other reality of it was that, you know, with my family being where they were at, it was like, I can't not stay engaged with that. Like that I have to, because, you know, the, somebody could die. So like it had to be different. Mm -hmm. And part of that was that I had to, I had to keep working and making money, but I had to do work that, um, left me feeling good at the end of it and and not burdened because otherwise I wouldn't be able to do the work when I got home. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, and so for the shows, how are things different? I mean, for for shows that aren't my shows or for my shows? For well, both. I meant for shows that aren't your shows. For though. shows that aren't my shows, things are very substantially the same, right? So um, a lot of our shows are owned completely by their creators and are completely, you know, like the, the McElroy brothers, for example, um, who do my brother, my brother and me in the adventure zone, among other shows, like they own their shows full stop mm-hmm. out. And, and we essentially function as a way for them to essentially function as their like fundraising, ad sales, marketing, you know, they're sort of like their record label, mm-hmm. um, and for them, or for Stop Podcasting Yourself, um, the great Canadian comedy podcast that people who listen to this would love. Um, um, they, I was a guest a while ago, oh, and yeah. I need to have them on my show. They're the greatest. They're so funny. They're total heroes of mine. And Dave Shumka has one or two adorable dogs. Oh, my God. Does he have two adorable dogs? They're so cute. Um, but for shows like that, their relationship with us is all exactly the same. Mm-hmm. The The biggest thing I think for shows like that, that, that will be different is I think sometimes people thought that when they were becoming a met, when they were joining max fun, which, you know, we were membership based primarily when they were joining max fun. They were like, they had the idea that they were like lining my pockets. Mm. Um, when really they were, very directly supporting the shows that they listen to, um, like almost over directly. <laughs> and uh, my hope is that this structure will just help people like feel that they'll be like, oh, okay. So it's not just some weird, because I know I'm a middle-aged white dude that wears neckties on camera <laughs> sometimes, right? So like, they're not just going to be like, well, that plutocrat is probably t- stealing the money, right? Mm. That they'll know they'll feel safer. So ultimately so it's it about your image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things we talked about, cause you mentioned neckties back in 2012, we were talking about pocket squares and I was, uh, so young and foolish then I didn't really, I was like, 
is a pocket square a handkerchief? And you're like, well, no, it's just purely decoration, though. Right. Um, in the same way a necktie is. And I hadn't, upon re-listening, I was like, you know, I never really thought about the fa- Is there really no purpose to a necktie? Is it just adornment? Yeah. There's no, like, there was no, it's, it's not like the, the belt things, of the neck. It's like one of the only parts of men's anything that is allowed to be purely aesthetic. Like it truly is, it is an expression of the aesthetic. Like there's different like versions of what the history, it says, you know, different Mm, versions of, of silk around the neck that go back hundreds of years. But like, and, and in fact, the, the necktie is like the, it sort of represents austerity. Um, How so? Like it it was the, it's the, there's this sort of movement called, dudes oh, i've heard of them evander evander <laughs> evander barry wall was this guy who's known as the king of the dudes <laughs> and this is in like the 1880s i think i think i'm getting that timeline right um you're sort of like your you're like all of your you're like uh, oscar wilde type era okay and they they dressed sort of what was then what you might call it consider uh foppish in a modern style okay but that was foppish, right? So the old fashioned was to be frilly and fancy. Mm. Theirs was to be like essentially sharp. Okay. But that was femme coded because mm. it was progressive, mm-hmm. right? And, um, which is interesting. You're drawing a distinction between that and the frilliness that came before it. And yet the frilliness was what masculine? Yeah, because it was what Richard right. Reed were up with the, you know, Louis Couture or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so the, the necktie is actually sort of like this version of punk, you know, it's, yeah. Or yeah, it's like, it's sort of like the equivalent of, you know, Converse all stars Mm -hmm. or like, oh, interesting. Or, you know, like Tom Brown suits, um, or, or something like that, where it's like, it's, it's about, it's about a, a, again, pre-modern, but like a modernist, set of values mm, like as opposed to a f- big frilly necktie a right. big that, frilly scarfy yeah, that you would have it, thing that you would have it be like perfect mm-hmm. and uh elegant rather than over the top and outrageous yeah that's so interesting i had no idea tony oh my god i haven't even said hi to you <laughs> that's all right hi, tony. hi i'm back to my old ways now yeah, you know it's uh For it's, a, it's back i expect it at this point it's yeah fine. yeah but jesse for a long time I would like, I would at minute 44, which is what we are now, I would all of a sudden realize I hadn't said hello to Tony. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I really got out of it. And he was like right in the beginning of the show. But now I'm back to my old ways. So anyway, where are you on the necktie? In what way? What like, is- do you have a style you like? Do you wear neckties a lot? I don't think I've ever seen you in a tie. Uh, I enjoy I That's actually something in the last like five years or so. I became... I never was like the guy who liked to dress up and mm-hmm. I kind of turned a corner and I do occasionally like wearing a suit and uh, yeah, there's something about it I like. Uh, but I have thought about how it's, it's when you really think about it, it, a tie is very strange. It's just this, we just put this piece of material around yeah. my neck. Um, but yeah, I like it. All right. What's your tie style of choice? Uh, I, I, I tend to go toward the skinny tie. Yeah. I could have seen that coming. Yeah, I know. I was waiting for a comment. Yeah. <laughs> and Jesse, what about you? I like a wide tie. Okay. Wide tie, man. But I'm a wide man. Mm. My dad 
was a wide tie guy. I think because his he really wanted to be in the mafia. Oh yeah. You know, that was to him, that was like the sharp look. And I'm not talking about Sopranos. I'm talking about like Godfather. Cause he came of you know, Godfather was a movie that he loved. So I I feel like there's a whole era of dudes who really uh glamour that was very glamorous right. to them. This episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend is brought to you by Poise Ultra Thins. One thing I know for sure is that when you're a new mom, you will take all the help and advice you can get. Uh, one thing that people did not tell me and which I learned on my own is that bladder leakage is super normal. It affects many, many women postpartum, even some of them uh, partum. Is that how I would say while you're pregnant. All I know is while I was pregnant, I was afraid to cough. And that has continued. And uh, period pads are not designed to help with bladder leaks, but Poise Ultra Thins are. They're essential because unlike period pads, they're designed specifically for bladder leakage and they keep you 10 times drier than the leading period pad. Poise Ultra Thins keep you feeling clean, dry, and fresh, and they have with and without wings to flex with your body. Poise really helps to make the most out of every day. It takes poise. Learn more at poise.com. I also need to talk to you guys about every plate. Looking to budget your food expenses for the back to school season? Get more bang for your bite with America's best value meal kit. Every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping with no hidden fees, so you can count on great value week after week. Plus, only pay for what you need with pre-portioned ingredients. Planning for a jam-packed fall? Get every plate and take back your time with fewer trips to the grocery store and meals ready in six simple steps. They plan the meals and deliver pre-portioned ingredients right to your door so you can spend less time meal prepping and packing kids or work lunches and more time taking a breather from your busy schedule. Get yourself one last thing to worry about this back-to-school season. Choose every plate over takeout to save money while still enjoying quick, satisfying meals. Their meals are 50% cheaper than your average fast, casual meal. They're the easiest way to eat affordably. Put the money you save towards making fall plans. My fall plans include going to a pumpkin patch, going, and those are expensive, bobbing for apples, and looking at the fall foliage. I say that the last one is a joke because the leaves don't really change in like a beautifully vibrant way in Southern California, as like they would say in the Hudson Valley or something. Um, But still, if anyone's doing a fall foliage tour, I'm going to take the money I save from using every plate and I'm going to go do that. Um, I, I really like every plate. It's really affordable. The meals are delicious. I don't love going to the grocery store and like, let's say there's something I know I want to make and then trying to, okay, I got to, but by the time I get home from the grocery store with the items, I don't want to make it anymore. Every plate takes the guesswork out of it. I like to cook with my kids. I like to cook for my kids. It's great. Get $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49Allison. Again, get $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49Allison. That's up to $110 value. Okay. Actually, speaking of dads, let's just get this out of the way. Yeah. How long ago did your dad die? It was, I guess now it would be three years ago. When was the pandemic? 2020. 2020 2020 is when it started. So two years ago. 
Wow. Because yeah. I was a guest on Jordan Jesse Go, the episode that you recorded um, when it had just happened. Oh, wow. I can't believe that was two years ago, though. So um, how are you doing? How are you feeling as someone who's like new to this yeah. club? I would I, like to know how, how the grief goes. Yeah, sometimes I'm just like, sometimes I'll just be like living my life. And I'll just turn to my wife and I'll just be like, fuck, I wish that my dad and my dog weren't dead. Mm. Um, not that they're, well, they're roughly equivalent. Not like whole other. I have talked about, similar. I have talked about how among the great losses in my life, I like my dog is up there. It's yeah. ve- in some ways it's, that was a harder yeah. loss. My dad it's it was such a weird thing because my dad had been my dad had been sort of losing his memory for a long time. He was never good at it. Mm-hmm. I remember one time when I was a kid, he told me that he had this conversation with his cousin uh, who was a doctor, and he said like, "Well, how come I can't? How come I? How come I can't remember anything, Bob?" And uh, he said, "He goes, is it the the drugs or?" The trauma, or am I getting old? And uh, Bob, Bob owns it. Yeah, yeah, let yelly. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> All of them. Yeah, um, but yeah, like he had been losing. He, he had gotten to the point where he was like, he was having a hard time taking care of himself, mm-hmm. not taking care of himself that great. And he lived with my half siblings, my half brother, maybe only at the time or maybe both of them and my stepmother um he's semi estranged from my stepmother and they were having to kind of take care of him more and more and um so in a way when he got sick he had cancer and we only learned very late mm. um it was like i could immediately tell that it was like in some ways a best case scenario because he was too forgetful to be freaked out about having cancer, but he was still able to like talk to us, mm-hmm. you know, loop a little bit, but like he was still able to be there and be himself to some extent. And, but he also was going to be gone before he truly couldn't take care of himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I say take care of himself for him, that was like, go to an AA meeting, make himself a sandwich, go to the bathroom himself, wash himself. Like be independent. Yeah. Um, and so that was all. And he was in his late seventies. Like he had a, he had a great run. Um, I think for one thing, it was very difficult because it was the beginning of the pandemic. And so, you know, I went, I flew, I drove up to the Bay area where I'm from and helped him into hospice with my stepmother, um, at the VA hospital in San Francisco. Thank you to the VA hospital in San Francisco. And, um, and I knew when that was happening that I wouldn't get to see him before he died because the, you couldn't visit except on they were letting people in on their deathbed mm. and I knew that I wouldn't be able to make the trip fast enough right. when it was close enough for them to allow someone to go there. 
So it was like, you know, I gave him, and I wasn't even allowed to go inside, right? So like, I my stepmother took him in. So I was like out, so hard. outside the, you know, sliding doors, gave him a hug. I love you. He doesn't know that he's going in to die. Mm. He knew he was going into the VA. <laughs> that was very familiar to him, but like, he didn't know he was going in to die. And, um, he didn't know he was going into hospice or he wasn't like aware enough. He, yeah. I mean, no, no, he, he, I mean, he had been told, but he didn't retain it. Right. Um, Oh, so he so knew sad. where he was. It's not like he was like lost or mm -hmm. like he was used to going there for doctor appointments. So it wasn't like a weird thing for him. But, you know, when I call, when I, I would call him in, in there and he'd be like, oh, yeah, Jesse, I'm at the, I'm at the VA. I'm in the hospital. I haven't been feeling so good. And I'd be like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> I know that. Um, but yeah, I think the, there was two hardest parts of it. One was that, that knowing that like that, that the end of the line for the two of us would be me dropping him off at the door, yeah. you know? Um, and then like the, the reality was that like, I, I, even now I, I can't, um, you know, it's hard to imagine now but like it wasn't the hardest or most pressing thing in my family mm -hmm. like the idea that um it was so difficult to take care of my kids in that time um because of their needs and what was going on with their health that like i was like wow I just dropped my dad off to die. And now I have to go do the hard stuff. Yeah. And so, and you know, and then he never had a funeral or anything. Right. Mm. Um, and that part of it, which is that like, th there is a part of me that, on the one hand, I do feel pretty okay about how it went down for him in terms of his experience of dying. I actually, um, there was, after he died, I got an email and it said, hi, Jesse, I'm sorry if this is an imposition or weird, but I thought I should drop you a line. My name is so-and-so, uh, I'm a medical doctor and, um, I was working through a position at the VA hospital in San Francisco and I happened to be rotating through the hospice and, uh, I was working with your dad and, um, he would talk about his kids and I realized that I, I said to him, when you say your son, Jesse, your last name is Thorne, is your son a podcaster? <laughs> and she had been a Judge John Hodgman listener. Okay. And she said, and I I got to just have lunch with him every day. Because he was in the hospice for, I guess, maybe three weeks, something like that. And, um, you know, just talk to him about you and your brothers. Um, 
so like I knew, and then when I would talk to him, he'd be happy. You know? mm-hmm. um, my dad, as his mental health declined, uh, just got happier and more comfortable. That's interesting. Um, it gave him distance from his trauma. I was always scared that it would, he had very severe PTSD. I always thought he would be freaked out all the time, mm-hmm. but I was worried he'd be freaked out all the time, but actually he was much happier. Um, and so I, those things were fine. I wish certainly that it could have been that I could have just given it a pe- a block of my life in mm-hmm. a way that I couldn't. Um, and I don't think I can get it back. Um, so that's sad. Um, but it also, you know, it was, like I said, the, the work of that was nothing compared to the other stuff. And I really did. Like I, the, the feeling that I remember most is driving back home. Um, and it was like, we weren't even sure if it was like, okay for me to go to San Francisco. Because of what was going on at home. Because of what was going on at home. And because my wife couldn't have help with that. Because of the pandemic. Because of the pandemic. (sighs) And we couldn't get any services for our kids Mm. because of the pandemic. No one was doing any in-person services of any kind. And so it was really dicey at my house. And I, I, I like was like driving home. I stopped in San Simeon, California, in the Central Coast. And I was watching the uh, elephant seals. Most incredible thing. If you have anybody ever is in Central California at that time of year, it's the most amazing thing you could ever see. And, you know, I'm just standing, you know, staring out at a gray ocean and crying, as you would expect. Yeah. And I got a text that from my wife that said, when are you getting home? And I texted her back. I'm just in San Simeon. So I'm, and she said, I need you to come now. Mm. Like I, she was counting on me to take five home instead of the coast, you know? Yeah. And, um, that part is just like, gosh, I wish I could have done those as two different jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh that's hard and i do wish that like you know my dad after he died you know you, you hear from you know people from his church and like all these people that he met my dad was an organizer so he knew a lot of people you know and um it would have been fun to like see those people and that too but like the biggest thing is i i wished it could could have been a a chunk of my life, mm-hmm. you know, that I could have had be discreet. Right. So, so that you could have been there for him or so that you could have properly grieved both. I mean, I just, it's just, to, yeah. Yeah. And I don't, you know, like, I don't know that I will get to, I mean, I had a complicated relationship with my dad. Everyone has a complicated relationship with their parents, but like, so I think sometimes that can make it worse. Yeah, like, um, or it makes the grief complicated. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I wish I could adjust because there were lots of times when it was like, I would love to be thinking about the fact that my dad just died, but I have to be thinking about keeping my children safe right mm-hmm. now. Um, and that was so. I mean, if you're wondering why I sold the company. <laughs> 
It's an intense amount of stress. Yeah. That was like the point where it was like, I can't do these three things. Mm-hmm. There's no way for me to do that or four counting, you know, my work as a, a performer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the, that was the sad part about it. But you know, I like the good part about it is what I said, which is that my dad was not unhappy when he died. My dad had an incredible life and my dad got to know my children and my kids, you know, I, I have this friend that works at the San Francisco Chronicle named Peter Hartlob and he is like their, um, he's runs what they call the morgue. This is not for dead people, mm-hmm. but it's for dead newspaper articles. <laughs> it's like the archive. Right? right. And, um, he went in after my dad died and he like found all the articles about my dad from the Chronicle mm-hmm. going back decades into the early seventies from his organizing days. Mm-hmm. Um, late sixties, actually. Mid-60s. So he he was a labor organizer. He was a he was a anti-war vets organizer, mm-hmm. uh, primarily. He also worked in the uh, independent living movement with uh, his. When I was a kid, his best friend Ed Roberts um, was, I mean, remains probably the most important disability activist in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he passed away twenty five years ago, but um, there's a state holiday in California and stuff. But that was his best. But so when I was a kid, he worked with Ed for a while. But but mostly he worked in the vets anti-war movement. And um, you know, there was like I got to like have pictures and articles. There was one about my dad started. I didn't even know my dad started a coffee shop because the vet the anti-war vets weren't allowed to hang out at the VFW. Mm. And um, so they started a coffee shop for anti-war vets in Oakland. Uh, and it was called the Pentagon. <laughs> just this picture from the Chronicle of my my dad looking my dad much handsomer than me, um, looking like super handsome mm-hmm. uh, uh, in in front of a big sign that says the Pentagon. It's <laughs> hilarious. But you know, like my kids knew that he loved them and stuff. You know, so it is neat how much I, I was surprised how comforted I was by hearing other people's stories of my dad. Cause we had a very tiny kind of impromptu service, like just family and actually not, not everyone was able to be there. So some were on zoom with the idea that we'll do a celebration of life later. Um, but then, and it took me forever to post on Instagram about it. I just like, I post everything, but I, for some reason that just, it was too, it was big and final. And but when I finally did, you know, all these people, who either were familiar with my dad because he used to make appearances on my show a long time ago or people that I grew up with would comment and say all these things about having known him. And like, all of a sudden I realized, and I know you didn't, you didn't get this, but I realized like, oh, that must be part of the benefit of having a big funeral is people sharing their memories and how that is like a salve. You know, I had this experience. I went to my childhood best friend's wedding uh, two, two, three months ago in new orleans and he and i been friends since we were one and two years old and his father died when i was 16 and he was 15 i think it was um he was in fact he was the aforementioned specialized house painter he was a house house painter who painted victorians in Mm -hmm. san francisco and um he fell off a scaffold and died oh geez and, um, you know, he was, 
this is true of many families, I'm sure, but like when you have single parents and troubled parents have troubled relationships and so on and so forth, like your friend's parents are are sort of alternative family for mm-hmm. you, right? So he was like, Mark, my friend Pete's dad would have, I could have lived at their house at any time. Yeah. No problem. And um, and he would, you know, take my mom to court when she had to go to court. Um, and I got to hang out while my friend Pete was getting married. <laughs> um, I got to hang out with Pete's brothers who are much older. They were half brothers. And I hadn't seen them since I was 20, you know, maybe once at Christmas or something. And we just got to talk about Pete's dad, Mark. And that feeling, I do, that is something special. And that's Mm -hmm. what you get from, and you can get that not just from those shared experience, like they were talking about, but, you know, I got a little glimpse of it when I would hear from people from my dad's, the church that my dad went to. So my dad later in life organized a lot through the church. And, you know, he went to this very lefty Episcopalian church with, you know, multicultural values, blah, 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 blah. But that was a bunch of San Francisco rich liberals, Mm -hmm. right? And I have nothing but love for San Francisco rich liberals. But, um, uh, but he, I think at the church was really like somebody who, held their feet to the fire in terms of what are you actually doing to make the world a better place? And, um, like I know him as fucked up mixed bag of a dad. Mm-hmm. I've loved and admire him immensely, but like fucked up mixed bag. Um, and to hear somebody at the church be like, you know, your dad never took any shit from us about, you know, what if somebody's steals shit at the church when we're doing the food pantry or whatever. Um, and he really inspired me to do this, this, and this, you know, and like to hear other people from, (laughs) to hear them say something, Mm -hmm. you know, to have, get an email from an old vet buddy of my dad's and be like, Oh man, you know, your dad got me into the program when it was, you know, I was living on the street in 1984, Mm -hmm. you know, or what, whatever. Um, those things were really, or just even just to, um, my aunt who was my, my dad's late brother's wife sent me this box of like his letters from when he, he lived in Hawaii for a while in the seventies and, um, and for some, from when he was in the service that he sent to his brother and, and she just told me different stuff about him, you know, that was a perspective on him that I never could have known. And I didn't get all that much because my parents were divorced and hate each other. I didn't get Mm -hmm. much like my mom didn't have things to say about my dad other than horrible things. (laughs) So like it's, I'd never got the family third party, Mm -hmm. like interesting things about your parents' life. And that, that thing is also a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how much that's like, I, I cannot get enough. I mean, I haven't gotten a ton of that, but I cannot get enough of that. Like if, People out there have stories of my dad. Get in touch. <laughs> yeah. And I also like the idea of my dad be like my dad. Um, like I said, a messed up dude. Um, but like, I think he also embodied very hard work on certain virtues that 
inspire me even now. And um, when I hear from somebody that says like, oh, you know, like when like, you know, I'll get an email from somebody that's like, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a chair. And like, when I hear you talk about riding on Ed's chair when you were a kid and going and, you know, laying Ed down on the stairs of the state Capitol or whatever, (laughs) you know, like I, or, or I hear from somebody that says like, you know, uh, hearing you talk about going to meetings with your dad when he was a single dad and he was trying to get sober and, you know, I I went to a meeting and now I'm eight months sober, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, those things, like it doesn't have to represent the totality of my dad to Mm -hmm. be like a pretty wonderful and, and real, Mm -hmm. like, it's okay for it to be that, that one, that wonderful thing about my dad. Yeah. Maybe, you know, it's interesting. Maybe that's a little bit why I'm realizing part of why it is like so soothing to hear these positive things about my dad is that I also had this feeling of like, there's so many great things about him. And then there's these things that aren't that great. And and it that's confusing. So then to have the world show, like, be like, we also saw all the good things about, like, I was surprised how many of my friends were like, he was, I always thought he was like the funniest, most charming dad. And it's like, oh, you, you know, that's, it's, it's just nice. And then the cynic in me goes, well, but when someone dies, everyone just, you know, says positive things, but still, but still, um, Okay. Now, do I wish that people came to me and talk shit about my dead dad? Yeah, of course I do. You do. We all want people to talk shit about our dead dads to us and make us feel bad when we yes. say that our parents died. <laughs> that is truly the gift is shit you didn't know that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, one more question along this. And yeah. then we have I have other stuff to get to. Yeah. So I, again, for me, it's only been like a little over a month. Um, it's July 12th. So I am still like... I feel like overall I'm doing okay, but I have these moments where I'm like, the whole thing seems so unreal or surreal or like, I can't, I can't, whoa. Like, I'm, I, I'm a person with a dad who is dead. He is not here anymore. Like all of that, I haven't integrated that. Did you have those moments and for how long? I mean, I feel that way still 100% because there's no, how do you integrate the reality of death into yeah. your conception of being a human being? It's impossible. Like the, I, I, um, I've been actually, I had a singing lesson today, not to brag about my extracurriculars, my, uh, pearl necklace lifestyle. <laughs> I'm probably going to do some dressage later, <laughs> um, but I, I had a singing lesson today because I was, I'm working on this song that I'm going to sing on the Hodgman tour. Cause I, with, I sing a couple songs on our show and, uh, which is relatively new for me. And it's this Randy Newman song called, uh, God song. Um, and the parenthetical is that's why I love mankind. <laughs> and basically it's, a dialogue between um, humanity and God where humanity is basically saying, why is the world so full of suffering if God is real? Right. And God is basically saying, 
instead of saying like, yeah, you deserve to suffer or yeah, I will deliver you happiness. He's saying like two things. One is, yeah, exactly. I don't care about you. Mm. Like he says, I don't. The first thing he says in the song is uh, that he, that he cares less about man than he does about the lowliest cactus flower on the loneliest yucca tree. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that he laughs at humanity for praying to him when he's letting their children die. Mm. Right. That, that to him, of course, who gives a care, right? It's what is a person in the context of, yeah, right. But the kicker of the song is that people have faith in spite of or perhaps because of their own irrelevancy. Mm. And he says, ultimately, the God in the song says um, that their willingness to have faith essentially in the not only the like apparent his apparent disregard, but like his actual disregard, right? That like, actually, yes, sure. Of course he cares about bees as much as people. He cares like everything is irrelevant, Mm. right? All things are things, Mm. right? It's a hopeful song, right? But like, but he says, uh, in the last little coda of the song, he says, uh, that's why I love mankind. They really need me. Mm. And I'm not a religious person, but, I think to me the the piece of that that is so consequential is that um it is possible to not have faith in the sense that you think oh, everything will work out or even faith in the in the Christian sense of like you know God is benevolent and is going to take care of us right there's a line in the song where all the religions get together and they say God if you won't take care of us will you please just let us be Um, and like God might not even be there to take care of us, but rather that the liberating part of faith is to accept, uh, that you are humbled before God, Mm. right? That it's okay to accept that the world is far beyond your comprehension Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's like in AA that you have to accept a higher power, right? You have to humble yourself before it. It doesn't matter if that higher power is Christian God in heaven or whatever, but you just have to know that it's okay for you not to be at the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And that for me is the part that I have to like engage with. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm great at it, but that is that feeling of like, to accept that someone's not there, you have to accept death. To accept death, you have to accept the infinite. Yeah. I don't even like looking at the ocean because it's too infinite. <laughs> but like, um, you know, you just don't have control. Mm-hmm. You just don't have control. And so what, what I th- think of a lot, frankly, is one time I played this rap song for my dad by this rapper named Devin the Dude. And Devin the Dude is my, probably my favorite rapper. All he raps about is getting high, sex. That's most of it. (laughs) (laughs) But just monumentally good vibes. And he has this song called Do What You Want to Do. And basically the theme of this song is like 
is no one is stopping you from being happy, enjoying your life, making the world better. Mm. So just fucking do it. No one, no one gives a shit. Just do it. Just, it's fine. Just do it. And to me, that's like the, that's the same as the play ball tattoo on my knuckles. It's like, just, you just, the world is beyond your comprehension. Mm -hmm. Death is beyond your comprehension. It's unfathomable that a real person is not a real person anymore. Mm. It's unfathomable that that person was separate in their own existence than they are from your conception mm-hmm. of them. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like... And that we will not exist in that same way one day. Yeah. I mean, I personally... I don't plan on that happening for me, but for the rest of you, right. yes. Right. I mean, I've always had that same plan. I'm right on I'm yeah. on track here. Okay, good. <laughs> I, say, I say we don't. Yeah, let's not. But... Could we opt out? In the meantime, I think like to find the... the I know that I feel like I have had to try to transform myself or be transformed by the stuff of the last few years. And one of those things is to try to have grace that try simply to give myself peace and acceptance of what the world is and just be like that's okay and it's okay like mm-hmm. i don't know i fucking love ice cream like what's your favorite flavor that's a good, that's a great you know i love i'm a i'm all over the place okay. i love i'm a really democrat i can't eat that much chocolate because it's a migraine trigger mm-hmm. but i do love it okay but um yeah i'm I, oreo cookie maybe but uh, you but won't you find me i'm not i'm not here to talk shit about other kinds of ice cream even like bubble gum yeah, I guess bubblegum's not that great. <laughs> but it's fun, though, because of how they get bubblegum in there. <laughs> yeah. It's two different kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you're a true, like, ice cream enthusiast. Yeah, I love ice cream. Mm-hmm. Like me and Dave Shumka from Stop Podcasting Yourself. Me and Dave eat ice cream every day. I love it. I love that. And Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi eats ice cream every day? Oh, my God. She has, like... She showed off her ice cream freezer or something. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Right. Yeah. She got a lot of bad press on it. But I feel like for true ice cream heads like you guys, you could see in her that well, she's you know, Nancy on Blasey, the level. Nancy Pelosi was my congresswoman growing up because um, she represents San Francisco where I'm from. And uh, I bet that in her ice cream freezer, she's got some It's It's, the official oh. frozen treat of San Francisco. Probably, yeah. Uh, which is the thing that I would most like my brand to be associated with. It's, um, it's yeah it's mm-hmm. it's there it's a regional food <laughs> you can't get it is it like a klondike bar kind of it's a it's oatmeal cookies chewy oh, two chewy oatmeal cookies with uh with ice cream in between uh and it's dipped in chocolate I could go for one of those right now yeah it's good as i don't it think gets. i've ever had one but i've seen them you can get them here yeah, I need to. In like New York, you go to like a San Francisco bar and yeah. they like order them like from Smokey and the Bandit style. <laughs> Devin the Dude would tell me to go have one now. Oh, or, I mean, absolutely. pretty soon. Yeah. Well, he'd tell you to blaze first, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you have mentioned the, the stuff that was going on with your family the last few years. And I have been wondering whether I should ask. I don't know how much you care to go into it. I mean, bro- broadly speaking, like... Um, my oldest, uh, we didn't know was autistic until, um, about five or six years ago. 
And um, as she had more and more challenges in school and um, elsewhere um, that led to some kind of crises in the pandemic and also in that same sort of period of time as those crises were unfolding um, learned that both of my other kids are also neurodivergent. Um, at this point, all three, all three of them have been, are, are diagnosed as autistic, but in very different ways, very different, yeah, very diverse ways. Um, and so, yeah, the, the main thing was um, uh, dealing with the kind of like mental health consequences mm-hmm. of the, intersections between the pandemic and and my kids particular challenges so like all three of my kids are what you know this isn't like language that uh autistic advocates are super pumped about but like they're all quote-unquote highly functional right Mm -hmm. like so they're all verbal are you not supposed to use that i mean like is it disparaging to other people on the spectrum it's just it's just sort of like it it I think the the idea of autism, the, like the biggest thing is that for a lot of autistic people, they would just like to be recognized as a, just a different kind of person. Mm. That that is just right, so not a value. People are it. different in lots of ways, um, and that it's you know it's not like they wish they had two legs and they only have one leg, and so they're short one leg, mm-hmm. right? Like right. they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that it is a difference that is also a disability in that it, you know, the world is not built for people like that. Um, uh, it's built by neurotypical people. And so it has enormous challenges associated with it. Um, but like, I think what, what a lot of autistic people that I've talked to about this or read about this, um, their main thing is they don't want to, they don't want people to think of them like they have a disease that needs to be cured. Mm -hmm. Um, but rather that they have a difference that needs to be recognized and accommodated and supported. Um, so yeah, like all, all three of my kids are autistic. They're all, all in different, very different ways. None of them are, uh, you know, they're all verbal. They're all able to, um, do stuff, you know, like they're, they're all able to, uh, like other than, <laughs> other than other than the fact that my daughter would want to talk to you about Double Dragon the movie a lot, um, you might not even assume that she was autistic if you met her based mm-hmm. on whatever your ideas of what that was. Well, that's something I'm learning is that this idea that people with autism don't make eye contact or aren't social or things like that. Like that's that's maybe one type, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty a, of but, very social autistic people. Yeah, I mean, like one one of my kids, uh, uh, my middle kid was at basketball the other day. And, um, it was practice starts at six and it was like seven fifteen, and I could see her kind of like staring up into the, uh, staring up into space and basketball's number one passion. Absolutely. Without a question. And, uh, she came up to me and she said, dad, oh, the coaches were talking, but I just heard blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and like for her auditory processing is like the number one challenge Mm -hmm. so she's the one probably who's the most neurotypical in general and it's hard to judge these things but probably the most neurotypical but like she gets tired she literally cannot parse what you're saying Mm -hmm. right and that is 
a common thing among autistic people. It also sometimes is true for, yeah. Hey. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, Right. So like, uh, whereas my oldest um, has never had that problem at all. Mm -hmm. But when my oldest is, um, when my oldest is agitated, when she's been out of shape, um, you know, like one of the big things is that there's, there's lots of stuff that, sends my kids into amygdala response, like fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Like the, the stakes are very high and intense and there's sensory stuff for her, my oldest that come up. Um, and it's not, not being able to understand what people are saying. It's like sharp sounds, mm-hmm. right. Or like, um, uh, sometimes when she's being destructive, she needs to like push and throw things. And I was like, is she just being destructive? And the the therapists are like, no, it's really about her system craving that physical input, mm. right? Like that that is how her body is expressing that fight or flight, all those chemicals right. going bonkers. Like she needs to push on something. Mm. They're like literally when she was younger, it would literally be like, just push, push on me. And my six-year-old, the same, like my six-year-old will be on the ground in between the um uh in between the sofa and the coffee table mm-hmm. and our coffee table is like uh like big locker boxes so it's you know it's it's doesn't have legs it's solid solid and we'll be like back against the coffee table feet against i mean back against the sofa feet against the coffee table just pushing them apart with the table probably weighs 100 pounds and my wife and I are sitting on the sofa, but somehow <laughs> still spreading them yeah. apart. And it's just like a sensory thing that, mm-hmm. that she needs for that, you know? And like all my kids are gender non The scene of you right? guys just sliding across the room. I know. I know. It drives it's me so great. Every piece of furniture in our house just moves towards the corners <laughs> of the house. It's entropy. Yeah. But like, the you know, gender nonconformity uh all three way, of them are. all three are and way over tracks with autisms mm. like they're uh, you're dramatically more likely to be gender nonconforming if you're autistic and it's like what is the reason for that different relationship between the brain and body different mm-hmm. relationship between you know there's a lot of reasons it might yeah. they don't really know exactly right but like um the the lesson is that it's just a form of difference right Mm -hmm. that it's not that it's not like uh like it's a difference that has huge challenges take it from me um but you know it's it's like my wife and i are much more neurotypical than them so Mm -hmm. our life is about learning how to support and take care of that right and your wife wrote a great book about gender yeah and i am blanking on the name it feels good to be yourself yes it's she came on my show and talked about it. It's great. Yeah, it's a p- picture book for for any for for kids who want to understand gender identity, whether they're cis or trans or mm. whatever else. Um, and it was like it's that's a similar thing. Like it's like for kids who are because my oldest who's trans, like she came out to us a long time ago, and. Um, I had to learn a lot about, even as a San Franciscan who went to UC Santa Cruz and had a trans neighbor when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. like I had a lot to learn about it. And one of the things 
one of the parallels that in my understanding that that I think is beautifully expressed in in my wife Teresa's book is that that gender is not is not a uh there's trans people and normals <laughs> that indeed we all have an understanding of what our gender is it just may be that for many of us there's enough people who share our understanding that we've never had to bother to interrogate it. Right. Like it's just never come up sort of like the way they say, you know, uh, a black person in a corporate boardroom is constantly thinking about them being black and mm-hmm. all the white people, it never occurred to them that they're white because yeah. it just didn't come up because everybody else there was white. Right. Cause it's the majority. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so like, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful book for, for cis kids and, and, trans kids and and everybody else and uh, somehow god i can't believe did you see the, the uh, teacher in cobb county georgia just got fired for reading a book about non-binary kids to i didn't her class see that but and the school board just like upheld the firing jesus in cobb county which isn't even like that's a sub that's a suburb of atlanta it's not like you know we're, we're not talking about yeah. yeah it's a scary time Anyway, the moral is it's taught me a lot about my own difference and like understanding it in a sensitive way and about the differences that we all have from each other and how to try and sensitively engage them and and support other people in in being who they are, you Mm -hmm. know, and doing the best they can with the world. Yeah. Something that I, I often think about that your wife said when I interviewed her, Teresa, um, was that thank you for clarifying which way <laughs> well you have so many <laughs> yeah. so you know and i don't know if they all write books and they if they right. might have all come on my show um that you can't make your kid be a different gender than they are so when they present these things to you and i th- i think because at that time like a lot of kids um you know <laughs> And I feel stupid even saying this, but like Elliot really took an interest in Frozen and wanted to dress as Elsa and, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. And it's like when that first comes up, you're like, well, of course I want to support whatever he is, but what sh- or what, you know, but right. should I uh, am I I don't know, like give giving him all of his dresses. What does that do or what? I don't know. Right. Do these things that everyone, well, I think it's because that- we imagine this sort of agency for ourselves yes. as parents like. I often think because people, you know, as a minor public figure with uh, trans kids, like people sometimes will, will sometimes like suggest the 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 sort of cliche is that people suggest I'm transing my kids, right? Right. That I've like somehow convinced my, and I'm like, in what world would I look at the option <laughs> and be like, you know what? This one seems like the good one. This is the chill one. This mm-hmm. one's going to This is the smooth sailing path, right? Like no, the reality is that if I could tell my kids if I could tell my kids be sis mm-hmm. and it worked, right. I do that just cuz it'd be safer and easier for them. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I not because I love them any less than they're anything else mm. or that anyone should be anything other no, than you what they the, are. You always That's want the just easy not, path for your kids. That's just not what the world is, right? Yeah. It's the same as, you know, uh, I'm sure people are like, want their kids to become CPAs 
and be happy being CPAs. Mm -hmm. And then they find out they're an artist, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, uh, uh, or whatever their, whatever their idea of how they can make their kids be something. Right. Right. And it's in like the evidence is very, 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 very clear that it is in our bodies. Mm -hmm. It is, it is not something that you can make happen. Right. And that it is, uh, a broad, a much broader a group of expressions than we would like for it to be for convenience sake. Mm-hmm. And that, that all you can do is say, this is the reality mm-hmm. as it is being expressed to me. And for me, what I have learned is that my job is to hold lightly my understanding of who I think my kid is Mm -hmm. because they are them. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I am not like I'm the boss of them in the sense that I tell them to clean their room, Mm -hmm. but I'm not the boss. And I can't define them. I can't define them. They, they have agency. They're a human. They're themselves, you know? And so, even with gender identity, right? Like, why why do I say all three of my kids are gender nonconforming? Because I just try and hold it lightly, you know. Like, uh, all all my kids are using uh, she/her pronouns these days, and I'm like, great. And if they want to do something else later, that's also fine. It's gonna be fine. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm gonna listen instead of telling them because. I, me telling them can only have bad effects. Mm-hmm. Like me trying, I can't convince them. I can only make them suffer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like I want my kids to know, yeah, I'm on your team. <laughs> like we're on this team, mm-hmm. you know, like I, yeah. That's a lot though. in in a few years. Oh yeah. No shit, dude. <laughs> Yeah, and my dog died. Did I mention my fucking dog died? No, you didn't. But I remember, I remember you tweeted. When was that? That was, I guess, about a year ago. We just spread her ashes at my cabin. Mm. Cabin's named after her, but you know, what was she, her name? Coco. Oh yeah. She was like, my wife and I had adopted a dog named Woofy, and he turned out to have distemper, and he died not long after. And you have a woofy keychain, right? Yep, I do. It's on my keys right now. And um it's his tag. Mm. And um and I just thought I'd never love anything ever again. And then we got Coco and Coco lived with us for twelve years or something, thirteen years. Well, no, more than that, because she we had her well before fourteen years. And um, you know, she got real old. And I felt like it's funny, like when the pandemic was at its most horrific, um, I was like, Coco, just hang in there for me. Okay. (laughs) I was like, buddy, can you just, like I told Teresa, I'm like, Coco can live in the kitchen and I'll clean up her pee. Um, let's, she can hang in there for a little while longer. Right. Like let's hold off on doing any. She sure did. You know, she sure, she sure did. And she never, um, you know, for me, I think like as Mr. Independent, take care of myself 
don't want to be a burden to anyone, but also Mr. Completely dependent because I have a horrible disability of chronic debilitating migraines. Um, like when my wife had to dedicate herself to being a parent and couldn't take care of me when I needed taken mm -hmm. care of because of my migraines and stuff, like the dog took care of me, mm. you know, she would come and put her head in my crook of my arm Aww. when I was like on the bed crying from, you know, a headache or whatever. She'd just come and be there with me. And I was like, when she, when she was finally done, I was like, shit, man, she really, she stuck with us when we needed that. Mm -hmm. Cause I couldn't, I really truly couldn't have made it through my kids crises and my dad passing without the dog. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just her, her idiot sister. <laughs> <laughs> What's her idiot sister's her name? Sissy. My dad actually named her Sissy cause she was going to be Coco's little sister. She's <gasps> just a, just a ba little bag of rocks in her head. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you'll get another one? One day. I, we, we have to stabilize our lives to the point where I can, <laughs> to whatever dog we get, I can teach it not to pee on the rug, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so hard. It, it, that, is, has, that has been a weird realization for me that loss is loss. And... Losing, and I hope I'm not offending, I guess, my close family who listens. I don't, I think, I don't think they'd be offended. Like losing my dad has not been, let me, let me, re, let me rephrase that. Losing my dog was the same pain as losing a person. My, my therapist was like, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's fine. You really loved your dog and your dog loved you and took care of you. And that's what dogs are. That's why people like to have dogs. Right. Because they're amazing at that. Yeah. You know, and that's fine. You don't have to. And it doesn't even have to be like, this is my fur baby. <laughs> right. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a person to have that. It can be right. a dog. Yeah. Like my dog was a dog. She's a very weird dog. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> troubled dog. <laughs> but like, uh, <laughs> But like, uh, it's not even like her love with was unconditional. <laughs> it was weirdly conditional. But like, <laughs> uh, but like, it's okay. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we have these. This is another thing of like, here's something to not hold on to too tightly. This conception that like, oh, an animal, it should it should affect you differently than a person. Like, no, <laughs> <laughs> that has not been my experience. <laughs> Yeah, it's We're fine. really close to dogs. It's okay to be, it's okay to love your dog. You know? Yeah. You're a pretty good dog over here. Yeah, Wendy's pretty good. Um, Wendy has to have some teeth pulled out on Tuesday. And because she has a, a heart condition, it's a little bit higher risk. And I am like, I know it's the right thing because she's in pain because she has some infected teeth, but I'm just like, it's I'm wild. so worried. Look, a Oh, there's no weirder veterinary truism than when your dog gets some teeth out, they get like four years younger. Oh, really? It's wild. I'm, they didn't tell me it's that. It's wild. I'm looking I don't forward to understand that. how or why it works. I don't, but like one time a vet said that to me. And then when every time our dog has had teeth out that needed to come out, it has been transformational. And you're like, okay. Oh, that, see, that <laughs> makes me happy then. Okay, good. 
Because she's been acting old lately. Maybe she's maybe it's just yeah. the discomfort of her teeth. Yeah. All right. Let's do something fun. Yes. Uh, let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? All right. Do you have a just me or everyone? When you drive into a parking garage, like a quieter parking mm-hmm. gar- and you park your car, do you want to go to what you're doing or just stay there and take a nap? St- thousand percent stay there and take a nap. Right? Like I dr- get to the office mm-hmm. and we have a beautiful office. And these days, often there's no one else in there. So I would be going to enjoy an entire beautiful office by myself, Mm -hmm. typically. But I park in the parking lot and I'm just like, I'll wait here for a minute. And then I'll be like, I'll be like sending my emails in my driver's seat of my car. Mm -hmm. And then I will literally just be like, I'm going to go to sleep for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> take a nap inside my car at nine o'clock in the morning or eight mm. thirty in the morning or whatever. Uh, I think I may be tired. I don't even, well, it's possible <laughs> that I'm tired. Uh, I, I think I may like, I don't even like car being driving or being in a car. I think, but I think that the most happy I, I think it's about it being in between places mm. and physically protected. Mm hmm. Like that it's that it's not your destination and it's not where you're at. Right. Nothing's so asked of asks you. So little of you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um I definitely like when I when I get home, I'll sit in my car for a little while or I have that too, but I, I don't I've never actually taken a nap in the car. Like I don't feel that protected in my car Reco- that I would recommend. Okay. Re- do you put your seat back? Yeah. Oh, so you you're <laughs> fully do you lock your doors though? Yeah, but I'm. It's a quiet parking lot, so that's the thing. It's a structure, right? So it, yes, I've been there. I, I like can cool see where it's and, yeah. It's like cool and darkish, um, and I just go, <laughs> yeah, and then out cold. I do enjoy fully reclining. If Daniel's driving, I typically I try to stay awake for him. You can fully recline while the car is moving. It's actually not a full recline, but it's ba- it's back far enough that you just look. Usually I try to stay awake to talk to him if we're driving late at night. But there have been times where he's like, you can go to sleep if you need to. And I'm like, OK. Um, I feel like I'm going to die in a traffic accident when I do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, occasionally I'll have like a as I'm falling asleep thought of like, what if he gets it? Like, what if we get into an accident? But sometimes you're, I'm just too tired. I'm just too tired to be awake. Tony, napping in a parking structure? No, because I am like the world's worst sleeper, and I am pretty like I'm. I'm. I've known I have anxiety and stuff, but I think as I've gotten older, I'm realizing just it's way worse than I realized, mm-hmm. and it just I cannot turn my brain off. Are there it's, any in betweeny places where you feel safe? <sighs> Even just physically, like one of the one of the things that I've gotten so much more experience with with three neurodivergent children and thinking about myself in these terms is just like what kinds of weird physical needs people have to feel safe Mm. and i think about like how much of my childhood for whatever reason 
I would spend on the ground with my chin to my knee oh, uh, in front of the heater vent. Mm-hmm. Like a cat. Mm. Yeah. Man, nothing, Behind could, a nothing chair, comes to mind. Between the heater vent, you know, like a gas heater, you know, like yeah. hot air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, and the back of a chair, chin on knee, reading a book. Mm. Wow. Do you, like, can you sleep with your, do you sleep under the covers or? Yeah, under the cover, but like, I pretty much can only sleep in a bed. Like, I cannot sleep on this planes. This is from a person who, who toured on a tour bus. Well, yeah, but that, I mean, when you're doing that for months at a time, yeah. eventually your body is right. like, okay, you're going Just to collapse. sleep. Yeah. I've, uh, I can now take a nap. I'm, I was, couldn't nap at all until I was in my 30s, probably. And now my number one, my wife will be like, you can go upstairs and take a nap in the bed or whatever. Not great at that. Mm-hmm. Although I'll tell you the secret that I learned is that you just say, I'm giving myself 20 minutes off and I don't care if I'm going to go to sleep or not. That's a great ed- pro tip. But what I, the, my number one way to fall asleep is everything is happening in the house. Mm-hmm. I'm on my side on our sofa because it has, I'm a, it has a nice divot in the middle mm. for me to put my hip in <laughs> and I'm watching the baseball game. Oh, that's such a dad move. <laughs> I know. That is that screams you you're a professional dad. It makes me so happy to have the baseball game there, yeah. but I'm not watching it. I'm mm-hmm. actually taking a nap. But it's just so makes me so happy that it's there for me. I used to be someone who could only nap on the couch or if I was going to nap on my bed, it was on my bed. Never got on never I I I am not a tidy person. I mean, I'm not unsanitary, but like I'm not an organized person. I'm cluttery, but I make the bed every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, like I can't wait for Daniel to get out of the bed so I can make it. Um, sometimes I'll, try, I'll like make my side when I get up and he's still asleep. But um, so I would never unmake the bed during the day. And sometimes I would like take my pillow and put it at the foot of the bed. Like that's how much I'm not committing to getting in bed. And then I think it was when I was pregnant that I that it all changed. And now I like... I'll get back into bed as many times during the day as I can. Mm. Can I tell you something that I think is incredible? I have two bed thoughts. Yeah. First of all, I just want to give a tip of the hat and a salute to the great Julie Klausner, comedy Mm. comedy writer and performer and podcaster with Tom Sharpling uh, of Double Threat Podcast, uh, Julie Klausner, who created something that I haven't stopped thinking about since since she mentioned it. It's – where you get your favorite foods and all your bed clothes mm. uh, sort of around you in a circle. It's called a snack nest. <laughs> um, I love this. And that's something that I just want to share because is, is to make it available to people. Wait, and you're it. wearing your bed you're clothes? In or your, you're you're okay. in your bed. You're surrounded by your bedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and and your you snacks. have your foods. Yeah. And that's called a snack nest. I love it. Um, sort of like the way a hamster tears up newspaper to right. make a little. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, the other thing is, uh, do you know who Sarah Vowell is a yes. nonfiction writer? And so she's like my hero and she just comes on Jordan Jesse Hill once in a while. She lives in Montana. So like, and she's above it. <laughs> but, uh, once in a while we'll be like, Sarah, will you have a book out? Will you please come on Jordan Jesse Hill? And she'll be like, yeah, guys. Okay. And, um, uh, one time Sarah Vowell was talking about making her bed and I was like, I don't really make my bed. And she says, Jesse, you need to make your bed in the morning. And I'm like, but I don't even, I'm bad at it. She's like, it's a meditation practice. Mm. Just do it. And I started doing it and she was right. 
40 years old, I started making my bed. It feels good, right? And you're like, look at this. My bed is nice. Mm -hmm. I'm still bad at it. Like, it's not like I'm putting hospital corn. My dad was in the Navy. Like, he he was serious about how his bed was made. You just smush it all in. Yeah. And I'm like, look at that. I did it. Look. Oh, it's nice. Yep. What? I did it. What's your throw pillow situation? I put it back together. We I'm, just have two reg- with no, okay. no miscellaneous. Just okay. Two, yeah, I'm kind of two decorative pillows in addition to the two standard pillows. Same. Uh, I grew up in a house with like, oh, this is the neck roll pillow, and the, this little square, and the, this rectangle, and just a whole a whole buttload of pillows, and uh, I, I don't like that. I use the decorative pillows to put underneath my knees mm. for sleeping from my back. My doctor recommended it makes a big difference. Well, there you go, Tony. Do you make your bed? Sometimes, not always. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's just depends. Like if I'm going in and out of the room, because it's like, I don't think about it unless I see it. Right. But if I see it, I do like, I'm like, yeah, this is bothering me. Okay. Yeah, I like things to be nice. So. Sounds chaotic to me. Um, And do you have a, hey, go fuck yourself? Yes, I do. Summer. Oh, yes. Just the entire season. <laughs> I literally, I don't like amusement parks or the seaside <laughs> going none even of the good things mm-hmm. about summer fair, are even fair. Fi- i do like the county fair but it's too hot there yeah. i can't deal with it because it's too hot there mm. that's a good point i love the idea of going to the fair but anytime i go i'm miserable the entire time mm-hmm. yes oh i i just want to see the the 4-h children and their bunnies <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to get a heat stroke <laughs> for me, I think like there's two factors. Number one, I'm from San Francisco where there is no summer, mm-hmm. right? So like to me, I'm fine with a summer that peaks at 84. That's too hot. If but yes, but I mean, right. it's, it's a nice place to visit for two weeks. Yes, yes. To me, summer is two weeks of it being 84, mm-hmm. which is totally fine. It's fun for to be 84 for two weeks. Yeah, it's novel. Um, uh, so that's that's element number one. Element number two is. Because of my migraines, just like being out in the sun is just like a guaranteed mm-hmm. freaking suffering. And so I just I have I have cultural, like I'm unprepared for it mm-hmm. as a person who was raised in a place where it's never hot. And I have a physical reaction to it that's just miserable. And yet I live in Los Angeles. Yeah, what are you thinking? I, because Go to Montana. They don't have show business there. I know. I know. They don't have show business there. Yeah. Yeah. But I, my mom is from D.C. And I spent a couple summers in D.C. That's and hot. The humidity. You can't even believe that it's – for me. You know how people are like, why does anybody want to spend the money to live in California? You're like, have you been to other places? <laughs> I don't even know how human life exists <laughs> mm-hmm. seven months of the year in mm-hmm. Chicago. Yeah. She, of course. Yes, of course. Chicago is an incredible, beautiful city. Of course it is. But how do you even live when it's August in Chicago? How do you do anything? Yeah. No, I feel the same way. Anything. I've only been to Chicago when it was cold. Does it get crazy it's the hot same. there? The heat it's is awful. as bad as the cold. Yeah. Okay. Nobody they talks about that. They are the same scale. They don't talk about. They talk about yeah. the wind yeah, and about the, cold, the pizza, and that's it. The, those yeah. summers are brutal. Yeah, okay. it's, you're that's, just walking through soup. That's yeah. why when you're there and it's like May, and you're like, "Fuck, Chicago is like at least eighty-five percent as good as New York, and it costs forty percent as much to live here." 
why doesn't everyone just live in Chicago? Like, this is pretty great. That's how Chicago, how pride, proud Chicagoans feel. Yeah. You're like, this is great. This is like New York, but you don't have to be so good looking. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you're like, Chicago is, look at this gorgeous city. Like, mm-hmm. look at all this amazing stuff you have access to, whatever, whatever, whatever. But then anytime it's any other month, mm-hmm. you're like, how is this fit for human habitation? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do. I miss New York a lot. The cold did not bother me, but in the summer, it was. I mean, that that's soupy too. Yep. But Chicago's worse. You're saying? You sure, it was yeah. worse I, than New York. The mid, yeah. the Midwest, kind of in general, like some of the like Chicago, St. Louis, Nashville, all those places are pretty, pretty gross. Nashville yeah. is yeah. is humid too. Oh yeah. <sighs> yeah, they're all. It's it's pretty brutal. Like people are like, well, why would anyone want to pay whatever to live in Santa Cruz or San Francisco or? You're like, yeah, because it's really nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, sure, there's like cultural values, blah, 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 blah. But mostly it's mostly it's because the weather's nice. Yeah. Like, the weather's really nice. My mom grew up in Northern California. I was born in Northern California. She grew up in Northern California. And she said the fog would get to her like it was depressing, which I love a gray day. I cannot imagine being depressed by that. To me, the fog is the... There are parts of San Francisco where the fog is omnipresent. And I did not grow – I grew up in the Mission right in the middle of San Francisco where the fog is very transitory. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like San Francisco, the day has a sort of rolling pattern to it. Um, it changes through the day. Uh, and it, it changes in just small places within the city. Um, to me, like the perfect weather – if I could choose anything is Santa Cruz or, or like the East Bay, Oakland, mm-hmm. where it's like a little warmer than San Francisco, but it's not that hot and it's wet when it's the wet season, but it's not like miserable and dank all the time. It just rains, which I love rain. Um, you know, but my, my stepmother is from Belfast in Northern Ireland and to her, the ultimate climate is, um, is this place called Donegal in the north of the Republic of Ireland, sort of northwest corner of of the island of Ireland. And uh, Donegal is like the towns along the coast just south of San Francisco, which is to say that it's just, it's just brutalist concrete gray. It's just a, like, all, the sky is always looks like a, a 19th century painting of a stormy sea. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like grays and greens. (laughs) You're like, how is the sky green? You know, Um, that is her ideal. But that is a little too. Too much. Like the nice thing about the Bay Area is it does get sunny in the day. Mm -hmm. It's it's foggy until 10 and then it clears up. I think I'd be okay with a permanent gray, but um, maybe I'm wrong. I would like to find out. And I'm not getting it in Burbank. Uh, Jesse Thorne, this was delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on and allowing me to ask you to tell sad stories <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, listeners, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that my merch store is now live. T-shirts, hats, mug, tank tops. Oh, more than just mug. Mugs. Wow. With a Z, well, pint glass. There's probably a lot of people out there looking for their new favorite mug. I think they are. And there's an array of mugs, and some of them 
at least one comes in two different sizes. So if you're like, yeah, it's mine, but I know. Uh, yeah. I might be giving them too much. Unleaded and leaded <laughs> when I'm drinking my coffee. That is okay. good. When you're drinking your go juice, that is good. Um, uh, Daddy needs his coffee. <laughs> <laughs> See? Even Jesse knows the value of a good mug. Uh, so go to AllisonRosen.com. And then at the top, it, there's a banner that says, my merch store is live or something along those lines. You you can't miss it. Allison, you want to hear my signature impression? Yeah. Ow, ow, my foot. That's someone trying to have their morning coffee, but they don't have an Allison Rosen mug. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's no mug there. To yeah, hold the so they're coffee. burning themselves. So they're it's steaming hot. Yeah. Thank you. I think we need to make a drop of that and we need to use it when I talk about my merch store, please. Do we need to get a clean one? Hit it, Jesse. I think we got it. Oh, you think we got it? Okay. All right. Um, Can you put some, can you wet it in post? (laughs) Put a little reverb. Yes. So that that they're like. A richer sound. Yeah. So it's like someone drinking their coffee in the morning without a mug, but they're in a bathroom. Sure. Or in that famous recording studio, the Frank Sinatra recording studio in the Capitol Records building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what I want. I want to have that rich sort of... I can uh, hear it. I can yeah, visualize. Yeah. Yes. I got the plugins. We'll make okay. it happen. Great. Follow me on social media at Alison Oh, Rosen. can you do it in analog, please? <laughs> oh, yes, for the buttery tones? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll get a turntable in here. And yes. You yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. something with tubes. And uh, I'm on TikTok, the Allison Rosen. Jesse, where might we find you? You can find me on tour with Judge John Hodgman up and down the East Coast of the United States and the Midwest of the United States. Uh, it's our Van Freaks Roadshow tour because mm. uh, we are into the vans. So Hence Van Freaks. Yeah. VanFreaksRoadshow.com. You can find all of the dates. And uh, if you're an Allison Rosen fan, why not listen to a recent episode of Jordan Jesse Go with mm-hmm. Allison Rosen? Jordan Jesse Go is our silly, all bullshit, nonsense, a lot of swearing and vulgarity with, with Jordan, who's a regular here. He um, was just on this past Thursday, and I'm going to be on an episode coming up next month, I believe. And if you love arts and culture, and who, I mean, I know, Tony, you love art, right? Don't get me started. Yeah. This, this, <laughs> uh, I host an NPR show called Bullseye, and uh, why not listen, for example, to my recent interview with Smokey Robinson? Yes. Wow. Yes. Do it. I interviewed Smokey Robinson. I can't believe it's real, but it's right there on tape. Go listen to it. Tom, also, Tom Hanks recently. Go wow. Listen to Tom Hanks. Look at that. Nice. But who is like your biggest get for that you you personally? Was it David David Letterman? Yeah, it was David Letterman. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. I David Letterman was asking me if I liked the kind of seltzer that I was drinking and I was like, is this real? Is my life real? <laughs> what kind of seltzer was it? it? Was a it wasn't a polar. It was a oh gosh, what's that called? Is it a bubbly? No, it wasn't a bubbly. It wasn't one of those froofy ones. It, no, it was a it was a middle of the road one. Um Oh, I can't think of what it was, but it was a nice seltzer. Okay, you text me when you remember. <laughs> Tony, what about you? Waterloo. Okay. A Waterloo uh, great yes. Oh yes, we have some Waterloo's. Uh, Instagram ads. Tony Thaxton. And uh, if you're in LA, be playing at the Highland Park in the Lodge Room with both Jonah Ray and Don't Stop Roll Die, August 25th. That's this coming Friday. If you're listening to this, that this will be out on Monday, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a great, yeah. That's a great time out down there at the Lodge Room. Yeah, I like that venue. Yeah. yeah it'll be a good time playing double duty with both Jonah and Don't Stop Roll Die. And yeah, that's it. I didn't know you were playing double duty. Mm-hmm. Look at you. Tony, you're a drummer? Yes. Yeah, that's why. 
Everybody needs a drummer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tony could Tony work till the day he dies. Everybody yeah. needs a drummer. Yeah. Show I him that. Show him the scar on your arm. His arm almost exploded, but he continues drumming. It makes her furious. A reliable drummer. This I guy's, know. This guy's never going to go hungry. God tried to smote him. A trustworthy drummer. Wonderful. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Listeners, I don't normally thank you, but I guess I do now. I was just, I was just feeling magnanimous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you for finally thanking me after all these years. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? 